You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 56. Before we get started today, I would like to thank TechPDX for the donation this week. As always, all donators to the show are awesome, and they should all feel awesome. I would also like to thank Bruce from Canada for sending in a small correction. Up until this point in the show, I've been referring to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and other places as British colonies. As Bruce points out, this is absolutely incorrect. By the time of the First World War, they were actually dominions. Dominions are very different from colonies in that they have self-government in almost all things except for foreign policy. This distinction is important, and I will try to make sure to refer to them by their proper status from here on out, partially because I don't want a group of angry Canadians showing up at my door. Last week, we followed the British as they landed in Mesopotamia and advanced to Basra. This landing would be just the beginning of the campaign in 1915 and early 1916. This episode, we will continue to follow that campaign as the British, under the leadership of General Townsend, advance first to the small town of Al-Kut and then towards Baghdad. The Mesopotamian adventure would find its end of the road at Al-Kut, where the British would experience what would be called the greatest military humiliation in the history of the empire. But before we talk about more fighting in Mesopotamia, let's take a brief look at some of the struggles that the armies in the theater faced as they tried to support these huge armies in the desert environments of the Persian Gulf. The Middle East is a new theater for us, and it is a unique environment where trying to supply armies was different than really anywhere else. The challenges were so, well, challenging and unique that in the First World War in the Middle East, the author spends an entire chapter just talking about all of the problems. Much of the information in this section of this episode comes from this book. Here's a quote from the author Ulrichsen. Quote, Civilian and military planners additionally faced a steep learning curve as they struggled to adapt the new and often unfamiliar requirements of large-scale warfare to the specific setting of the Middle Eastern campaigns. End quote. Many of the problems present have been discussed at various times in other theaters, but never have they really all been in effect at the same time. 
there were large distances involved, just like in the east. But here it was stacked on top of unforgiving weather and areas where existing transportation options were usually only around rivers. This wasn't the end of the problems, though. There was also the fact that the local infrastructure just was not designed to handle the demands of large groups of men that were the size of the armies in 1914. Now this isn't to say that any place was really equipped to handle millions of men, but in the desert it was especially harsh given the lack of resources. Tens of thousands of men take a lot to keep supplied. As a result of all of these problems, after the British landed and started to advance, they were still highly dependent on India as their primary source of supply. Even after they built up bases in Basra, they had to transport everything either up the river or use traditional camel caravans. To make the whole situation worse, Basra was completely incapable of handling the load being placed on its port facilities. After the city was captured by the British, it could process two transports every three weeks, more than enough for peacetime activity, but the British would have two whole divisions that they needed to supply from the port by the summer of 1915, and two transports a month was barely able to keep them going. This situation would continue for far too long. You may be wondering, as I did, why they didn't make any move to improve the port at Basra to handle more supplies. That seems completely logical. But it was just not in the budget. The projects to increase capacity were no small undertaking, and the government in India, which found itself mostly responsible for financing the campaign, imposed a strict budget on its commanders, and the improvement to the port facilities just didn't fit within that budget, to the great detriment of the campaign. Even once the supplies got ashore, the struggle was not over. Rivers had been used for millennia to transport goods huge distances, and I'm sure the British planners saw the Tigris and Euphrates on the map and assumed that they would be good to go. This was a huge mistake, and the misunderstanding on some of the particulars of using these two rivers would ensure that they would not be used properly. Maybe the biggest mistake they made was the failure to realize the huge differences in the rivers due to the change in seasons. The Euphrates, for example, was often very shallow in the dry season and required a very shallow draft boat to navigate. The rivers would also flood at certain times of the year when it rained, and this would cause an equal but opposite problem, where the avenues for advance along the river were swamped and began to become seas of mud. All of these problems could have been accounted for, if the British had properly understood local circumstances. It did not help anything that the Middle East was considered a sideshow, which meant that even if they could have greatly increased the capacity of the port at Basra, and perfected the transport of those goods upriver, they still might not have had enough. The troops were often not given enough resources from Egypt and India, forcing them to try and rely on local sources to make up for the shortfall. This then taxed the local infrastructure and resources beyond the breaking point. During the war, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine would all suffer famines that would cause great suffering in the civilian population. It should be noted that while the war certainly played a part in these famines, it was not totally the fault of the British. Apparently there were some problematic weather patterns and, I kid you not, a plague of locusts. All of the problems discussed so far have been strategic and logistical problems, and I haven't even touched on the problems at a tactical and personal level. 
Fighting in the desert with the sand, the heat, the cold, was all difficult for the troops who were unused to the conditions. Apparently, and there seemed to be several different sources on this, like I mentioned a few episodes ago, mirages were a big problem for the British troops, who were seeing them for the first time. Under all of these circumstances, it is unsurprising that the British would make some hefty mistakes, so I guess it's time to start discussing them. We left off last episode with the British having landed troops and taken over the cities of Basra and Kurna on the Shat al-Arab. Soon after these two cities were taken, the collective British eyes started to slowly move northward as they searched for another target further up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Any further advance would require more troops, and so more troops were brought in from India to allow the advance to continue. The supply routes would remain the rivers, which were precarious at best, for the reasons that we've already discussed in this episode. However, most of what we have discussed has been about the shallowness of the rivers. The floods in the spring of 1915 were just as problematic, or maybe even made the situation worse. Here is Major Hubert Young discussing the situation. Quote, it is difficult for anyone who has not seen the effect of the rain upon the flat alluvial desert of the Basra Delta to form any idea of the resulting abomination. A particularly gluttonous type of mud is evolved in which it is almost impossible to stand upright and in which cars and carts stick fast and horses and camels slide in every direction. End quote. Getting boats was also a problem. Not because, at this stage, the leaders didn't know what kind to order, but instead the fact that they were being ordered and shipped all the way from London, instead of coming from India like they probably should have. This was due to the fact that before the war, the industrial capacity of India had been intentionally reduced out of fears of rebellions. Even with the weather and the supply problems, two more jumps were made in the summer of 1915 with the captures of the city of Almara on the Tigris and Nazaria on the Euphrates. Both of these represented a roughly 75-mile jump on the rivers, taking the British front further into modern-day Iraq. These advances also meant that the British were strung out over about 200 miles at this point, between the Persian Gulf and the two newly acquired cities. Now with these two cities captured, the cycle began again, and the British again looked further up the rivers to find the next possible objective. This time their eyes settled on just one objective instead of two, and that objective was the town of Alkut. Alkut was a small mud village that was in the loop of the Tigris River, so that it was surrounded on three sides by water. Importantly, it was located at the point where the Shadal High met the Tigris River. The Shadal High is a canal that connects the Tigris and Euphrates, and it was an important location for the British to occupy. The Viceroy of the Secretary of State for India would even go so far as to say that the capture of Alcut was, quote, a strategic necessity, end quote, since it was in a position to command the entirety of the lower Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It would do this by greatly hampering the Ottomans' ability to move troops between the two rivers, a vital activity for the Ottomans given their sparse manpower at this point in the region. Every time the British had advanced, it had become more and more difficult, and the advance on Kut was no exception. The problems generally were not at this stage from Ottoman opposition, but instead from the elements. The advancing troops were starting to have problems related to staying healthy, the health concerns were not that much different than those experienced by the troops at Gallipoli in the summer of 1915. 
The typical tropical and subtropical diseases were present in force, and they were coupled with deficiency-based ailments like scurvy. Scurvy was actually a really big problem for the British, because there was never much fresh fruit and produce available locally, and it was difficult to move it up the river. These ailments would put more and more men out of action completely as the campaign continued. To put these problems in perspective, during the 1915 Middle Eastern Campaign, the London War Office set the casualties from actions with the enemy in the range of about 23,000. Not a very large number on the scale that we've been discussing so far. The number of casualties due to diseases, though, was over 200,000, nearly a tenfold increase. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. So when the troops of the 6th Division moved towards Al-Kut in the summer of 1915, they were almost completely reliant on the river. And during this time of year, the Tigris was at its lowest level, so this is like the opposite of what we were discussing before with the floods. And that made it difficult for the boats to keep moving. The difficulties greatly slowed the British advance, and made it easy for the Ottomans to begin preparing for their coming. These preparations would not greatly affect the capture of Al-Kut, which was taken in late September, without too much effort by the British, really. The conditions left the British troops somewhat isolated in their newly captured town. With their forces becoming more and more spread out, the British upped their communication with local tribes to increase communication and hopefully negotiate favorable treaties with them. Ulrichsen gives three primary drivers for tribal decisions during this discussions. The first was how they had interacted with the centralized political authorities of the Ottoman Empire before the war. Were they involved with the Ottoman administration, or had they been outsiders? The second was the benefits that they would receive from either side after the fighting. It was really just a constant bidding war to keep the various groups on one side or the other. 
And finally, the considerations based on just the current situation in the area and the balance of forces at any given time was very important. The reason makes the British constant advancing, even when consolidation may have been prudent, slightly more understandable. They were trying to influence more tribes. By advancing and appearing strong, it made it easier to negotiate with local leaders and increase the number of local leaders that could be influenced by the British just from square kilometers. While all of these factors were considered by all sides, the fact was that agreements were made and they were extremely fluid and would often change as soon as the military situation swung back and forth between the two sides. The British knew that this fluidity was just part of the deal and would sometimes use it to their advantage to play tribal leaders off one another to exploit the situation as much as possible. In 1914, just like today, there were a lot of complex issues that were used by both sides to divide, unite, and play groups one off another. Even though the British were doing their best to gain any advantage possible, Toby Dodge, a noted political scientist focusing on the Middle East, has said that the biggest problem that the British fell into was that they had a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation that they were in. British leaders incorrectly categorized the regions in a sort of binary system of corrupt towns and ennobled tribes. This sort of generalization was not always correct, and it caused the British to make some poor decisions and trust the wrong people. Fortunately, these decisions would not yet greatly affect the British troops in Al-Qut, although it would eventually. And speaking of the troops in Al-Qut, with the troops at a new, more distant town, I'm sure you know what we're going to discuss next. They were now looking for the next objective that they could strive for, and that new objective was Baghdad. Again, for the same prestige, show of strength, etc., etc. reasons. Baghdad, though, was more important than the previous towns captured in the advance. Hardinge, the Viceroy of the Secretary of State for India, would have this to say about Baghdad. Quote, On the other hand, from a political point of view, the capture of Baghdad would create immense impression in the Middle East, especially in Persia, Afghanistan, and on our frontier, and would counteract the unfortunate impression created by the want of success in the Dardanelles. It would also isolate the German parts of Persia and frustrate the German plans of raising Afghanistan and the tribes, while the impression throughout Arabia would be striking. The effect in India would undoubtedly be good. These are considerations which attach a great deal of importance. End quote. Even with this seemingly extremely important city in the sights of the troops in Al-Qut, it would be two months before the start of the advance. Up until now, they hadn't really encountered too much resistance, but that was about to change. They were constantly advancing further and further from their supply lines, supply lines that were already stressed, as discussed before. The distances just kept making things worse. Al-Qut was about 200 miles from Basra, as the crow flies, and countless more by the winding rivers. Just to make things even worse, the Ottoman opposition was going to be much stronger in Baghdad, more troops were moving into the area, and they were falling back onto their supply lines. In front of Baghdad, they would not have any of the supply problems of the British, and they would far outnumber them. After the two-month delay, the troops of the 6th Division, about 11,000 troops, moved on their way towards Baghdad. They would not make it to the city. The Ottoman defenders decided to meet the advance 25 miles southeast of the city, near the town of Tessaphon. 
Ctesiphon had been the previous Sassanid capital city and was the site of the end of one of the last great Roman offensive campaigns, with the legions under the command of Julian winning a Pyrrhic victory there in 363 AD. The 11,000 British troops would be met here by around 18,000 Ottoman troops in a battle that lasted for three days, from November 22nd to the 24th. After these days of fighting, and not making very much progress, Townsend would have to call for a retreat due to reports of a further 30,000 Ottoman troops on their way to the city to reinforce the defenders. With the decision to retreat made, the question became where to retreat to. Many of the men were wounded, and even those that were unscathed were still exhausted from the march to Tessaphon and then the fighting. Townsend was forced to stop back at El Kut, which was already hundreds of miles worth of a march, because his men simply could not go any further, and the next viable town to halt the retreat in would be a further hundred miles. After the thousands of casualties suffered during the battle, a further 1,000 would find themselves on the casualty lists during the retreat. Once the troops that were left reached Alcut, Townsend turned it into an armed camp to await reinforcements and supplies to arise from Basra. Upon his arrival, he communicated to Basra that he would be surrounded, but he had about a month's worth of rations for his men. This message gets Townsend a lot of criticism by most historians because it was a flat-out lie. In fact, Townsend had enough supplies for at least three months, maybe a little more, all the way into April 1916 instead of January. This was a huge problem, and a huge mistake on Townsend's part, because when the British leaders in Basra heard of the time frame communicated to them by Townsend, they immediately began preparing to launch a series of operations that were not well planned or prepared for in an attempt to relieve him. If they had known that they had four months to lift the siege, operations would have most likely been far better prepared and supplied, and they also would not have been launched in the worst time of the year for large operations. The first attempt was made on January the 21st, but immediately became bogged down by the heavy rain and resulting mud that was present every January in the region. The Ottomans would not just wait around Al-Qut for the relief forces to arrive, but instead left just enough troops to keep Townsend bottled up and move the rest downriver to meet the advance. The first attempt in January ended in a complete disaster, and another was launched on March the 8th, and this was stopped in much the same way through a combination of enemy action, lack of resources, and weather conditions. In the first week of April, a third attempt was launched this time by the newly arrived 13th British Division, which had been diverted from Gallipoli in late 1915 when it was decided to abandon the peninsula. The shortage of rivercraft was so problematic by this point that the troops had to walk all the way from Basra before the attack could be made, and this resulted in another complete failure. One final attempt to relieve Cut was made on April the 25th, but by this time, the relief forces had reached, in their own commander's words, the absolute limit of their offensive capability. They had suffered 10,000 casualties, which was a quarter of the forces that had been committed to the campaign. In the end, the advance of April the 25th was the last chance for the besieged forces of Kut, and on April 29th, after 147 days under siege, Townsend, after ordering the British and Indian troops to destroy all of their guns in proper fashion, surrendered all of the forces under his command unconditionally. 
At the time of the surrender, it was considered by many contemporaries as the greatest military humiliation that the British had ever suffered. A special committee would be created to investigate the campaign called the Mesopotamia Commission of Inquiry. In its findings would be this quote that would make it clear that there were many failures that caused the disaster, and they would be fixed in the future. Quote, While no one factor was decisive in compromising the first attempt to capture Baghdad, together they overwhelmed the rudimentary military capabilities of Force D. The cathartic shock of the accumulation of failures triggered a widespread reorganization of operational, administrative, and logistical responsibility and paved the way for the resumption of the advance after months of soul-searching. As for the men who took part in the doomed venture against Baghdad, 10,000 of Townsend's men had died in the attack on Baghdad and the retreat, and 13,000 would be taken captive and there would be around 23,000 that had died during the attempts of rescue. The continuing story of the troops that were taken captive is maybe one of the saddest of the war. Almost two-thirds of the men would die in captivity during the war, mostly due to a series of marches forced upon them by their captors, and the oppressive conditions in the work gangs that they would eventually find themselves in. Townsend, on the other hand, would live a life of relative luxury near Constantinople for the rest of the war, something that would greatly tarnish his reputation after the war and after the horrible fates of his men came to be known. After the fall of Al-Qut, our tour of the Middle East is over for now. 1916 would prove to be the beginning of big things in the Middle East, as the long-prepared-for Arab revolt began. The British would attack out of Egypt as well and into Palestine, and one of the most recognizable figures of the war will finally make his appearance, T.E. Lawrence, maybe better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll tune in next episode as we move our focus out of the Middle Eastern deserts and once again onto the high seas as we take a two-episode deep dive into the events that led to the Declaration of Unrestricted Submarine Warfare in the spring of 1915.